Welcome to Conversations with Z and Vindesh, a weekly dialogue that explores common life challenges and offers practical solutions. Learn more at thedispassionateobserver.com. That's T-H-E-D-I-S-P-A-S-S-I-O-N-A-T-E-O-B-S-E-R-V-E-R.com. Thanks for joining us today. We're continuing our discussion on primalism. So let's start the discussion recapping part of what we talked about last time. Last time we talked about the structure of the brain and the three different components. So the audience might remember that there's the primal part of the brain, the reptilian part, which is really ensuring that we survive and the species continues. There's the visceral part or the mid part of the brain that's responsible for all of the sensory input, all of our feelings. And finally, there's the frontal lobe, which plays the cinema in our minds. It's taking all of the information from the reptilian brain, from the visceral brain, and making sense and narrating a story that helps us understand and relate to the world around us. So when we think about primalism, primalism occurs because there's an imbalance across those three parts of the brain to the extent that we lose touch with our environment, that our mind drifts from the present, we're no longer aware of what's happening around us. And we lose feedback about our environment, and we lose an ability to discern what's real and what's not real. So if there's a potential threat, we don't have the ability to accurately gauge the environment and gauge whether that threat is real. So we always assume the worst case. The frontal lobe becomes overactive and we start spinning stories that have nothing to do with reality. We end up living our life in our heads, and we catastrophize everything. And this tendency to catastrophize stimulates the primal side. It, again, makes us feel like we're always under attack. We always have something to worry about. So, Z, why don't we start the discussion over there? Could you help us understand a little bit more about these types of imbalances and also why they occur? Sure, Vin. Whenever there is a disharmony of the mechanism of the brain, we have illness, and that's how we define it. The primal part of our brain is how we express our life. Humans are animals. We live, we breathe, we breed, we develop, we feel. We have this other part of our brain that conceptualizes, creates pictures, images, that takes all information from the senses and categorizes it, draws these amazing pictures. Then we have another part of our brain, that limbic, that gut brain, that is involved in a constant feedback between the primal gross brain and the more subtle frontal lobe. And whenever that relationship is hindered, we will have problems with our health in every area of health, mental health, physical health, emotional health, social health. We'll all suffer. It's very important to have boundaries with each part of these brains, each component of our mind, so that we can have healthy commerce. When uh, one part of our brain is constantly being triggered, then that creates a anomaly of growth in that part of our brain. You will see that when we get caught up in our head, when we are in the front of our brain and we're constantly looking at pictures in our mind, going back over those pictures, retracing footsteps over and over and again. You can imagine how that is. That animal that's leashed to the brain is acting. You're neither going forward nor backwards. You're in a state of limbo. This ultra-redundancy, back and forth, back and forth. And from that back and forth, infinite new pictures are being produced by the front of that brain. Like a copy machine that's broken and won't stop making copies. And then, like that copy machine, 
you're constantly trying to see if there's an improvement. Is there something new from the same picture? There's nothing new. So it's very important that our brain has that finality, that everything is actionable. A thought, an idea comes to your head. We need to have an action and a resolution. Uh, my voice is shot today, Vanzo, excuse me. So as I was saying, when that frontal lobe redundancy anomaly occurs, you're playing pictures in your mind over and over again. What could happen, what might happen, what could happen, what might not happen. What if this happens or that, and you never resolve it with some action. And in doing that, that part of the brain, in a sense, becomes more dominant. And in its dominion over the others, it begins to allow less interaction of the other parts of the brain. So you're almost paralyzed in thought. And we can see this with people not too far from us on a regular basis. Let me go over something I went over. And let's go over it again. There's no benefit to that. What is done is done. The only thing that we can gather from that that is valuable is the knowledge of that experience. So the purpose of those thoughts and pictures is to give us possible solutions to problems. If we do not act upon that, then we are constantly creating probable scenarios. Now we're living higher in the psyche. We're actually now touching on psychopathy, the pathology of the psyche, the dream state, the illusion state. So many of us witness this or have gone through it. It's a very unhealthy place. Because it also paralyzes you. Because this part of the brain, to act itself out completely, doesn't need a body. You can completely live in your head. And when living in the head, there's no visceral or limbic feedback. There are no more instructions to the primal body to act, to move, to run, to stop, to breathe, to sleep. In a sense, You've abandoned your body. You begin to see that in many of people we admire for their great intellect, but they have abysmal health. We have great thinkers that suffered all their life from extreme to severe health issues. We're always striving for the ideal place. The ideal place is harmony. The limbic feedback is so important to resolve the issues that the mind has presented to the animal. The chase is done. My belly is full. My situation is secure. There can be no more than that. Once we start to reevaluate reassess, we start to break the lines of commerce between the three parts of the brain. The regulatory benefits of the limbic or gut brain begin to be challenged. And that regulation is no longer suitable for sustaining healthy life. So we see the digestive issues the glandular issues, the immune disorders, all being produced because this frontal brain has told us that there are so many things going on, yet the primal brain has never been able to resolve it because there is no feedback. There is no texture. We can think of many examples of that, Vin. I think about someone who goes over and over a scenario long after it's resolved. They're replaying it in their mind. They're using up a tremendous amount of caloric energy. 
the brain is actually heating up. The brain is a computer. Our brain uses anywhere from one-fourth to one-third or more of our energy every day. Just the brain itself. So as you're going back and forth in your head, not moving, not acting, not doing anything, you're depriving other parts of your body of its nutritional demands. So now you have bone deficiency, mineral deficiencies of all kinds. You have cortisolemia. You have glandular issues arising. So this is why it's imperative that you have a tool that creates harmony, a thought, an action, a resolution. Close the book on it. A thought, an idea, an action, a resolution, finality. Close the book on it and move on. That allows us to maintain that healthy commerce or handshake between the three vectors of the mind. In Taoism and Buddhism, in the Vedic studies, they always talk about the trion of the being and of the mind, the gross, the causal, and the subtle. When we think about more advanced integrated medical practices, we look at causality, what caused the thing. Then from there, we look at how do we resolve the thing. We also look at, at that resolution, how to prevent the thing. Subtle, causal, gross. Does that make sense? Z, you're talking about these imbalances, and what you're saying makes a lot of sense. The frontal part of our brain is there to paint scenarios, to analyze possibilities. That keeps us alive. It helps us plan for the future. But to your point, there's got to be some action, some resolution. That all of that thinking has to lead somewhere. Otherwise, number one, it's wasted energy. And number two, we keep on going over the same mental picture, the same cinema, again and again and again. We feel the same threat again and again and again because there's no closure. Even if it doesn't exist, we lose touch with that reality. And we lose touch with that reality because we're missing feedback from the limbic part, the visceral part of the system. How did that happen? How did we get to the point where we're not in touch with the present, we're not in touch with what's happening around us, and we lose the ability to regulate the frontal part of our brain? There are many reasons, many causes. One of the most basic causes is trauma. Um, emotional trauma, physical trauma, can cause the first disconnect, the fracture. You often hear stories of people who have endured um, horrific suffering, but they were able to get through it because some way they disconnected from their bodies. They endured hunger. They endured physical abuse. They endured mental torment. And they simply left their body. So that's what we first see. The next are social stylings. Where we take a path in our cultural environment that disconnects us from our body. In the late 60s, they introduced a style of women's beauty that, it, that it promoted the idea that a woman who was emaciated, uh, the waif look, who had very um, low body fat, was considered beautiful. People bought into that as part of their cultural stylings and said, thin is in. So that measure of thin that was designed by the fashionistas of the day had no connection to the actual health of a human body, but only in the minds of those who were the shot callers in the fashion world. 
So from that period of time, women began to starve themselves to fit an idea that they had bought that said beauty involves you being of uh, minimal fat, minimal girth, and basically appearing to be in a dreadful state of health. So you heard the stories of girls uh, vomiting their food up, eating very little. Body dysmorphic disorders were on the rise, all to fit an idea that some person had said was beauty that was bought into. Not listening to how your body felt. Not listening to your caloric needs. Not responding in a clear way to the primal animal that says, I need food. Stopping the limbic feedback to the brain, overriding it, and only using the visual cortex to define your caloric needs. Then that visual cortex is then distorted by different parts of the intellect and told you no matter what you saw, it wasn't thin enough. So we had an epidemic of that for a period of time. Fast forward to the, the early 2000s and the pendulum swings the extreme opposite direction where a large derriere, big butt, could never be big enough. So women would look in the mirror again based on what they've heard and decide that their body wasn't right. Not that they couldn't get up the stairs or they couldn't get in and out of the car. Uh, They could perform whatever physical acts they needed comfortably. But unless they fit an anomalous glute model, then they weren't healthy. They didn't listen to their diet. They didn't listen to their body. The loop was damaged. So that's how that happens. The power of the intellect is unknown. But we can witness its ability to construct and destruct an individual. You have people who toil and toil and work because they've heard that success is something unattainable. But we must measure it first to know we haven't attained it. So they pursue astronomical financial goals. And each time they arrive there, it's not enough. They're comfortable. They're safe. Their bellies are full. They are loved. The animal is comforted. It's being well cared for. It's being well nurtured. But there's no feedback loop. So the mind paints a picture of dread. So that animal doesn't feel full, doesn't feel protected, doesn't feel safe. So it runs about hoarding, digging, looking for more, preparing for the worst, missing the good days, missing the comfortable moments, constantly looking for more. So that disconnect can happen for a number of reasons. And whatever the reason is, we must reinforce the connections, reestablish the clarity of connection. Be very clear on what connection is so that those conduits stay open and free-flowing so that the, the information that is being exchanged, the commerce of the mind, is always auspicious, always healthy. Always well. Your description of why we've lost the feedback is fascinating. It's something that I've seen over and over. I've seen this in my family. I've seen this with my friends. We adopt narratives, models for success, models for what it means to be okay. 
to be healthy and vibrant and have a life that means something. And these exist nowhere but in our minds. These have nothing to do with whether, as you put it, we're safe, we're loved, our environment is secure, our bellies are full. We feel that because we don't have enough money and we don't even know what constitutes enough, but we just have a sense that it's not enough, that we're not safe, that we're under attack, and therefore we're triggering this primal survival mechanism. So it's almost like we've trained ourselves to override the visceral input, to ignore what we're actually feeling in favor of the story that we're telling ourselves in our mind. So then, Z, the, this brings up a couple of thoughts. Number one, if narrative is so important to our functioning, and narrative is ubiquitous in society. You look at society, there are maybe three or four models of what it means to be successful. You could have the celebrity model. You could have the financial model. You've got well-established norms for what a successful life is that unfortunately are arbitrary and even more sadly are destructive, yet they're all over the place. This is what we see other people do. This is what we've absorbed. This is what we've trained ourselves to do over and over. If that's the case, how do we start to break away from that and reestablish the connections across the different parts of the system so that we get that balance that's so critical for living a healthy life? Then I, I love solutions to problems. And the idea that we can fix something. Far too many people have become addicted to panic and dread. Our bodies, the primal self, this husk that carries our soul, has been made numb through the maya, the illusions in the mind. Just numb. We're just numb. We have all these shows about zombies, the walking dead. It's popular because it's a metaphor about our daily lives. Far too many people have joined the walking dead. What I mean by that is this numbing of life. You're not experiencing life, you're listening for life. You're looking in the theater of the mind for what life is. Life is under your feet. Life is in the palm of your hand. Life is in the beat of your heart. There are simple solutions to regain the texture of being, the sensual nature of life. One must realize first that whatever this kind of elixir of panic and dread is an empty nutrient. It is an anti-nutrient, actually. It takes from us. At this day, in this moment, where you sit or where you stand, there is nothing to worry about. How can I say that? Because you're listening. You're alive and you're well. We don't know what tomorrow may bring or next week may bring, but right now, we're alive. And if you were to take a inventory of your life, Look to the left or right of you, and there are people that adore you and love you and care about you. Check that off your list. Take a moment to breathe and ask yourself, are you really starving to death? No, so your belly is full. You are at peace. You're safe. You're loved, and your belly is full. And that is the most life can give you. There are many things that you could do that add interest to your life, add color to your life, your hobbies, your careers. But you must put a restraint on that. 
so that you're not caught up in this endless seeking, this chasing phantoms. Oh no, oh no, something's not right. I need to fix this or fix that. You know there's nothing wrong with you or your world. Whatever's wrong with it is what makes it right. This earth we spin on is a lumpy mass. Water here, rocks there. Wind here, snow there. Sand here. But in its dynamic movement, it sustains our life. There's a lesson that nature has given us. We have to arrest the dread panic addiction. There is a great power in reciting to yourself, I have everything, if not more than I need in life. Life is this moment. It is not last year. It is not next year. So by working with that, you begin to reattune those connections. There's have clarity. Their purpose is clear. To convey the present status of your being to your mind to regulate your life. It is simpler than it sounds. When I speak to people about their pain, and oftentimes we can mitigate the pain almost instantly with either some integrative health service, a supplement or something, and I'll say, well, how do you feel? Far too often people say, well, next week I'm probably not going to because last week I'd have, but I'll say, how do you feel now? And they have to stop and observe now. You hear that? They have to stop. Stop what? Stop running from one place to another. This is it right now. It is oftentimes that moment of grace and stillness that people feel after a funeral, when they've walked by the cold, hard corpse of someone they once knew, and they realize that that cold, hard corpse was the vessel that contained their ideas of that person. There's that realization that, oh, is that all we are is a bag of flesh? To be burned, to be buried? Yeah, that's all we are. What makes us different from that corpse is now. The breath, the warmth, the tears, the smiles, that's the only difference. So why not focus on that? In this world of Volatile materialism. Can we take a breath and say, you know what, I, I have everything I need. Not only do I have everything I need, I actually have everything I want. Because it's the I want that will corrupt you. Sit down and separate what you need from what you want and be very cautious about what you want because that will corrupt what you need. You follow me, Vin? I follow 100% and I've seen this so often. I think the challenge that we face We've talked about narratives. The most damaging narrative is the one that is so subtle and so ingrained 
we don't know it exists. And that narrative is something like, whatever you do, it's not enough. Whatever you have, it's not enough. You need to do more. You need to check more boxes. Pursue more activities. You can't waste any time. You can't sit still. It's a cultural narrative around not sitting still. It's a rejection of stillness. It's a rejection of peace of mind. And it's so ingrained in everything we do that we don't know how else to be, which I think is why it feels so unnatural. What you're saying is so simple. Just check off the boxes. Can I breathe? Yes. Am I full? Yes. Is someone shooting at me with an automatic weapon? No. All right, great. Let me relax and enjoy. But we're so conditioned to looking for something else and ignoring those basic inputs that that simple task that you just described is beyond us. And that's where it becomes incredibly important to keep that in mind, to have the awareness that now is all that matters. That we should literally have a checklist and we should keep a checklist in our mind of what we actually need. And if we have the food, the clothing, the shelter, the love, get in the, into the habit of pulling our mind back to that reality. Not just pulling our mind back to it, but feeling it, sensing it, allowing it to envelop us, and thus restoring the connection between the visceral side of our brain and the frontal lobe, and getting out of this addiction to panic and this addiction to urgency which all of us seem to be in, and none of us seem to be aware of. Then you're dead on it. When I think about the inputs, those little triggers, we have to train ourselves to listen to those subtle triggers again, not the loud ones, not the extreme ones, the little ones. You said that checklist. You're under no duress. Most of us are not, and if we are, it's not all the time. The world will not shape itself for us. It's something I tell my Tai Chi students all the time, my yoga students. You do not adjust yoga. You do not adjust Tai Chi for you. You adjust for it because it is part of the primordial harmony of our known universe. Be that thing. When you look at people and yourself, there are lessons to learn from common people. I think of the story of my neighbors and the little boys come over to play with my little boys. And one of the little boys is chubby. And he wants to play with the toys. And he introduces himself for me. I said to me, I said, who are you? He says, I'm Chibito. I said, with nice to meet you, Chibito. A few weeks later, I hadn't seen him. And I see someone looking at me through the planks in the fence. I said, who is that? He said, hey, it's me. Remember me? I'm Chibito. I'm the chubby kid. No emotional problems. Complete owning of himself. How at peace he is. What a monk he is. Self-acceptance is part of it. Pushing out failed and mal-narratives about life. Being at peace with less. Realizing that it is your valuation of the temporal things in your life that give it value. Most things in this world that we value, we value because we assign value to them. A dollar is worth so much because we all agree that a dollar was worth so much. Love is worth so much to you because you decided it was worth or not worth so much. Start to reevaluate your valuations of your life.
Your children are with you for a short period of your life and their life. If everything works well, they will eulogize you if everything goes well. Then make the best of this. Someone told me they were worried that their child wouldn't qualify for something. They were really upset. I hope my kids qualify for whatever the hell. And I said, well, who has created the metric of their qualification? Well, there's this group. And this group does what for you? Well, they establish qualifications. I said, well, why don't you establish another group that makes up qualifications and make sure that your kids qualify the highest? How about reverse engineer it so your kids are the highest standard? And they laughed and said, yeah, but isn't that what it is? You're looking outside yourself again. Go back inward. Cultivate those subtle healthy inputs. Know the boundaries. Set a limit to the things that you panic about in a week. Set a limit. Put it on your fridge or your medicine cabinet window or mirror and say, I am giving myself five panics a week. No more. Everything else will have to be deprioritized. And every time you panic about something, check it off. And when you get to the designated number of panics, hey, I'm out of panics for the week. Do that same thing with dreadful things. Set up a limit to dread. Give yourself five or ten dreads a week. Then every month, reduce the number of dread and panics. You'll see rather quickly how it changes the way you look at the world. That it was you who gave value to dread and panic. They only existed because you nurtured them. Then you'll get down to the basic things. Are the people in my life alive and well? I had an experience while I was going through my flu season. And I couldn't talk as I'm struggling to talk now. And a very dear friend came to me and just held me around the shoulders and said, I get it. You don't have to say anything. It felt wonderful. That's life. It felt wonderful. I felt life. My Blood pressure went down. My fever began to abate. My energy began to rise because I felt good. I felt good. And while I was caught up in dread and panic, I did not feel. And that felt bad. I think one of the reasons we struggle with just enjoying the now, being present, being content with what we have, is that we want life to be something more. We think, if I just get up in the morning, go to work, come home, hug my kids, and I do that until the end of my days, what did my life mean? It's not important enough. It's not exciting enough. It's not meaningful enough. And in that sense, panic serves a role because if we're panicking about something, it suggests that it's important. If you go back to that primal self, 
it suggests that it's a life or death situation. And we can tell ourselves, oh my God, I've got to get this presentation done. If I don't, the company won't survive. Oh my God, I have to get into this country club because it means everything, because I'm a person of a certain status and that status must be recognized. And that's what ascribes meaning to my existence. I think it sounds a little bit silly if we come out and say it that way. But frankly, that's how many of us operate. We're not happy with just living. We need life to be something more, hence the drama in our mind, the cinema in our head, where we're creating a reality which we hope is something more than what we have. What would you say to that? Again, you hit it out the ballpark. When I hear things about people measuring status based on somebody told them something, not only does it sound silly, it is silly. Above and beyond what I've seen in my travels, I have had the opportunity to wear out many passports, live abroad, travel this world in many capacities. And you will hear me say it over and over, there are 7 billion people in 10 different stories. We're not as interesting as we think we are. You have to like yourself. The Tao says if you seek the approval of others, you will always be their slave. No one will ever approve of you, nor with sincerity validate you, to a degree in which it will satisfy you. Because you will always need more of that to sustain you. You will always need more of an external stimulus to feed an insatiable ego. Reject all of that. Be okay with you. Like you. And people will like you. Everybody likes people who likes themselves. The only people that don't like people that don't like themselves are people that don't like themselves. You don't want them to be like you and you don't want to like them. Sounds like a riddle. But that is the reality. When I was a young man, uh, I was very socially awkward. Now that I'm an old man, it doesn't matter. But when I was a young man, I was socially awkward. And I had a friend, an associate, and I'll call him Al Clark. Al Clark had poor hygiene, was not that articulate, and um, didn't smell good, didn't take care of himself. He was the most unextraordinary person that I knew. But Al always had a date. And oftentimes dates that most of the fellows around him envied. And it was very frustrating because I had done everything by the book to be appealing to dates. I asked Al one day, Al, how do you do it? You're a pretty grungy dude. You're a shoddy dresser. You have poor hygiene. You're not well read. How do you always end up with attractive women? And Al and his Al car kind of ways. Well, I'm okay with me and they like me because of that. I said, well, that was a Sufi moment. Wow. It was that simple. He liked himself. So we can all be like that in every aspect of our life. You're with your partner because they like you. You may compare yourselves to others, but they're with you. 
And if you like yourself and you like them, then you're okay. You work in a field that you're reasonably good at, you feel good about it, it provides for you whatever it is that your agreement was, and if you wish to do better, then pursue better. That's simple. But do not look left or right to get pat on the back, to get a thumbs up, to get the silver plaque. Don't do it for that. Do it because you like what you're doing. Or even if you don't like it that much that you've made the best of it, and with gratitude in your heart, you're able to provide a living for yourself. How about that? What if you're not even supposed to be that happy about your job? Then be content with it. Look at the construction workers and the contractors out there. Jackhammering, drilling, sanding, sawing, manual labor, laughing, joking, catcalling. They're content because it puts food in their belly and a roof over their head. And with gratitude in their heart, they show up at the crack of dawn and leave as the sun's going down, finishing their day with no thought in their mind other than to get to their loved one. There's a lot to learn there. We must find peace with ourselves. That doesn't mean you will be over the moon with party favors, but you may just rest in stillness at peace with yourself. Z, you've made a lot of important points, and I want to summarize some of these. If we think about primalism, a lot of it comes from this imbalance, from the fact that we're living a life in our head where everything seems like a threat, where we revisit the threats, we don't take action, we just retrace our steps. And as we've talked about, a lot of that comes from narratives, how we think about ourselves, how we think about our lives. And the ideas in our mind about what constitutes safety that conflict with reality. The reality is that for many of us, we're fine. There is nothing that we're lacking. There is no reason why we shouldn't be content. But we have an idea that we need X to be happy. We need to keep on moving in a certain direction for a life to mean something. We are not okay. And if we're able to embrace, Very simple principles. Principles like being okay with yourself, liking yourself, like your friend Al. That soothes the primal self. That tells us that everything is okay. If we can focus on presence, on being aware of what's happening, on the beating of our heart, on the rhythm of our breath, we get back in touch with sensations that connect us to the environment, that restore those feelings of being grounded and being safe. If we practice gratitude, that's another form of contentment. We're okay with what we have. We don't need anything else. And my goodness, that primal self can rest. It can feel relaxed. It can feel at peace. And as you've put it to me before, that's really where life begins. In a safe, secure place where we're grounded, where we're rooted, where we're not leaping from one threat to the next. And you put it beautifully in one of our previous conversations. You talked about a plant. If you're trying to grow a plant and you keep on uprooting it because you think the conditions aren't perfect, there's something wrong with the environment, that plant is never going to grow. If you put the plant in place and you nurture that plant and you create that sense of safety, that's where life flourishes. That's where we feel healthy, we feel good, we feel connected. So in some sense, it's very simple. I don't think we're saying anything groundbreaking. I think the important thing to keep in mind is that unless we have the discipline to go back to these basic principles, we're always triggering those feelings of our survival being at stake. And that starts to lead to the decline, the decline of our health and the inability to live a life where we feel good and we feel happy. The remedy for primalism, when the primal is overwhelmed and is simply acting blindly, panic, react, fear, react, anger, rage, react, despair, react, 
dread react. The cure to that is the idea that you want to soothe the animal. What soothes the savage beast? What does it really want? Give it what it needs. And its wants are much simpler than the higher functions of the brain wants. It wants to feel its belly full and comfortable. It wants to be in comfort so there are not hostile elements about. It wants to be in a peaceful environment internally and externally. Have a picture of what that looks like. What soothes the beast? Ask yourself, what soothes you? And it won't be a lot of things. But remember, if you don't give a clear image of what is soothing, then all the other things will fill in a void, and you will never find it. It will obscure it from you. You'll be running about looking for this and looking for that. Now the animal's in dread. It's in panic. It's abandoned. It's feral. It's alone in the wilderness. Bring all that back. Bring all that back. Sit with yourself. First, alone. In your home. In your office. I'm okay. I know not what tomorrow brings, but today I'm okay. Sometimes when a a thought or emotions enters my mind, typically those of sentiment, missing a loved one, I'll call. The other day it was the birthday of a dear friend who had passed away a year or so ago. I spoke to his wife and I was left with my heart heavy. And I called my best friend from childhood, who I'm fortunate enough to still have in my life, one of my other friends. And I said, hey man, what are you doing? He said, I'm at work, I'm on a call. What's up? And I said, "I, I miss Aunt. And he says, okay. I'm not getting off the phone. I'm going to be working. But you can talk to me. And I said, I can't talk. I just want to cry. He said, that's okay. I'm going to call you later. And I'm going to cry too, but I'm at work. But you're not at work, so you can cry now and I'll listen. It was so soothing. I don't need anything else. Then I walked in the kitchen. And my, mo- my wife was running about. And I said, just held her for a minute. She said, what's up? I said, nothing. She said, okay. Let's do nothing for a second. I got to check in with life. I returned to work still suffering the ravages of the flu. And one of the dear friends and students saw me and said, how do you feel? I said, I'm still getting over it. And they handed me a tea. It's just the best tea in the world. People love me. I got everything. I got everything in the world. I got everything. That soothes the the primal beast. My beast is happy. And he can rest. I think one of the reasons that this mindset is intuitive for you is that you've suffered a lot of loss in your life. You lost your father at an early age. You've lost friends along the way. You lost a brother who was very close to you. And 
when you realize how fragile life is and how we can never take the time that we have for granted, it creates a laser focus on what's important. It allows us to cut through these ridiculous narratives that we always need more, that we're not enough, that we need the approval of others, and focus on just living and be grateful for just living. I would suggest that for people who haven't gone through that, you don't need to get to that point. A lot of what we've talked about as part of our project, the Dispassionate Observer, is the idea that we have to think independently. We have to examine our narratives, the ideas that govern our decisions, that govern our reality, and hold on to what makes sense and reject everything else. So let's not wait until we go through that loss. Let's not put our lives on hold. Let's reject everything that's adding nothing, that's making us feel fearful, that's making us feel insecure. And let's start today with the business of living. These lessons are universal. You'll see in one of the teachings of Buddha, the meditation on suffering isn't to make you sad. It isn't to put you in a state of melancholy. It is to lift your spirit in the moment to show you how much you have to be joyful for. So it'd be a good exercise for everyone to study the Buddhist meditation on suffering. And it's universal. It crosses all cultural landscapes. And just real quickly, I want to share with you, Vin, what I've learned from that. You talked about um, what I learned from loss. And I've learned to really uh, value the people in my life. Back in the early 80s, I was uh, living in in Newton, Washington, D.C., and I had a small computer company uh, that I was working with. And I found myself in a situation where I didn't have a car. There was a man working with me, very pleasant, always happy guy. Boris was his name. He had a strong Russian accent. But he was so warm and loving. It's like the he was my Buddha of that season in my life. I was working next to Boris on computer components. I noticed he had on his arm serial numbers tattooed to his arm. And I say, Boris, what's that? And he says, oh, it's the tattoos. It was from a difficult time. I said, really? He said, well, yeah. He said, but you've had difficult times too. You don't need this tattoo. And I went on and I told Boris, I said, oh man, I lost my car and I'm trying to go to work. Boris came by my house that night and handed me keys to his car. He said, I have two cars. I just wish for you to maintain this car and keep it for yourself. And when you're done with it, give it to someone else. I didn't know what to do. I said, Boris. He said, because you, you look like my brother. Be young, I said, I'm an African guy. and He's a Russian guy. Why do I look like his brother? He said, no, I see my brother in your eyes. So we continued to work together. And sometime later, I was sitting with Boris's a family get-together at the office. They said, yeah, Boris is the only survivor of the death camp during World War II. He's the only survivor. His uh, younger brother was executed in front of him. Boris held him until he took his last breath. I said, oh, wow. 
But Boris, at his loss, gave the ability to see his brother and everybody he met that had a like temperament. So no, not everybody has to go through that, but everybody can learn from that. Arrest this primalism. Find harmony in your daily life. Nurture that healthy commerce between what you think, what you feel, and what is. And we'll be okay. If you enjoyed the show, please consider leaving a review on Podbean, iTunes, or your favorite podcasting app. Every five-star review allows us to share more unique and insightful content. Learn more at thedispassionateobserver.com. Thanks for listening, and please tune in again next week. Peace.